I'm really glad you're here. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at the church. And if you have your Bibles or devices, would you take them and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 12 and verse 12. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. And if you have a Bible device and like to follow along, I'll try to give you the reference. If you don't want to follow along, the words will be on the screen so you can do it that way. I think it's always helpful for me if I can read and hear at the same time. There's more greater retention. Uh, if I could get you up here to draw it as well, you'd really retain it. And who knows, we might do that someday. John uh, chapter 12 and verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Can you imagine the thrill of the moment? Um, What had been promised centuries ago by multiple prophets, including Zechariah, whom John quoted in this verse. It's unfolding right before their eyes. It's, uh, it's being unlocked. They're seeing something historical, and they know it. The crowd was at a fever pitch, and the people are swarming to just try to get a glimpse of this traveling rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. They've heard that he just raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And it's all anyone could talk about, except the religious elite. He's retracing now the the very path that King Solomon had gone on from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up into the capital city. And they know the significance of this. They've been well-versed in these traditions It was certainly a picture of humility on his part, entering the city on the colt of a donkey instead of a war horse. And it certainly was a contrast to the type of entrance that someone like a puppet king named Herod or a Roman governor named Pilate would have entered the city. They would have done it with grand um, array and parades and all sorts of festivities making sure that the people were giving them praise. But Jesus did it differently. But it wasn't just to contrast his leadership style as opposed to those others. It was also as a fulfillment of prophecy. As Jesus rode into town that day, the crowds began shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us, save us. And then, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they waved palm branches uh, before him and laid them before him. They were signs of triumph and joy. You see, the palm was a symbol of great Jewish nationalistic pride, oftentimes being inscribed on their coins and even imprinted on the walls and the doors of the first temple. So for the crowd, 
this parade had huge significance. They realized what was happening. And for them, it can only mean one thing. A call to arms and a defeat of Rome. They saw him as king coming to the city to ascend to David's throne as had been promised and to return them to their previous glory and defeat all their enemies. What a glorious day to witness. This is what they thought that day. This is why they chanted and shouted. This is why they celebrated his entrance because they had one thing in mind. Here's the problem. It didn't go quite like they had planned. According to what they wanted, that's not what Jesus did. Instead of riding into the Roman fortress that was built right up next to the temple to keep an eye on all these religious zealots, instead of riding into that fortress and dealing with the occupiers, Jesus walked into the temple and dealt with his own. He dealt not with the outsiders by overturning their rule. He dealt with the insiders by overturning their tables. And he still does that today. He said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, and yet you've made it a den of robbers. When I read that scripture every time, I am struck in my own heart to wonder if maybe the American church, the Western church, much of the church today has done the same thing. Lord, have mercy on us. I don't want to be considered one who made it a den of robbers. Behold, your king is coming, is what the prophets said. But when Jesus rides into town, you just never know where he might go and what he might do. We think he's going to be for us and be against them. But instead, he's against sin. Against sin wherever he finds it. And he looks for it first among his own. In the house of faith. That's where judgment begins. Where we're sitting. Not where they're laughing out there. That's where judgment begins. And he looks right here. He especially wants to call out the sin that we have justified in our own eyes. And the sin that we have explained away as a part of our religion. Religious sin is the worst kind of sin. When Jesus rides into town, he first comes to us, not after them. He comes to us to see where things have gone awry, where we've propped up tables for our own convenience, where we've designed things that have been added and they have left behind the commands of God and chosen not to be a house of prayer. When Jesus comes to town, he comes to judge his own first. And while we certainly want to be those who worship, they worshiped in the temple, we don't want to be those who use outward acts of worship as our only response to the Lord. Because every outward act of worship must first be a token of a life laid down. 
The acceptable kind of worship he looks for is not symbolism or ritual. It is our whole lives laid before him. He doesn't want just lip service. He wants the whole mouth. And for that matter, he wants the heart and the body and the mind and the soul. He wants it all. That's what kings do. Kings, king. They rule. They reign. It's not optional. It's not a democracy. You don't get a vote. If you submit to the king, the king gets to tell you what to do. Now, we serve a great king. He is perfect. He is not in any way going to do something that is wrong and bad for us. But we need to understand, which is hard for Americans to do, that he's a king, not a president. He is the king. As king, it means everything that is us is now his. So behold, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. You know, Palm Sunday was not the only time that this new king would be grappled with. There were others throughout this week we call Holy Week where they had to grapple with the kingship, with the lordship, with the kingdom of God. A few days later, after Palm Sunday, the disciples are gathering and they're preparing for Passover, a meal that Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to have this with you. And they're preparing, and would you have it, that as they're preparing, a dispute among them arises as to which one of them is the greatest. (laughs) You know, if you're arguing about who's the greatest while you're following the greatest, chances are you're standing on some pretty shaky ground. It's probably not an argument you want to get into. All of this is reminiscent of earlier times. (laughs) One of my favorite stories is when the mother of James and John, the mother, not James and John themselves, the mother came to him and asked that when he became king, that he would honor her two boys. They're very good. They're very capable. They're sweet boys. Would Would you, Lord, just put one on your left and one on your right? That's all I'm asking. She only, she already, she knelt down before him you got to know it made quite a scene. Jesus is there. James and John are nearby. The other disciples are thinking, what's going on there? Why is there a mom kneeling down before the Lord? Please, Lord, when you become king, just make my boys the most important ones in your kingdom. And, And Jesus said, bless your heart. That's a loose southern translation. What he actually said was, you do not know what you were asking. I wonder how many times Jesus could answer our prayers with the same phrase. You do not know what you were asking. Uh, Jesus said, after hearing what the mother said, he turns to James and John, obviously, because he says, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Can you suffer the the thing I'm about to suffer? 
And they jumped up and said, sure, sign us up. If it means we get to sit on your left and right, yes, of course we can. To which now all the other 10 are really miffed. Not because they said it, but because they got to it before the rest of them could. And so now they're mad and Jesus has to address them. And this is what he said in Matthew 20, verse 25. Matthew 20, 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Wow. You'd think that after this come to Jesus moment, that the last thing they'd be arguing about is who's the greatest and whether anybody could have position over the other. But here they are on the very night that he was betrayed, arguing again. My goodness, short memory we have. And Jesus once again has to address their ambition. This is now in Luke 22. 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, or the New Living Translation says, friends of the people. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. Here's king talk again. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What kind of king is this? He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he expects all of his followers to follow his example. There's a whole lot in this world that I, I know Jesus is going to one day judge. I look at the horrific things that are going on in our world today. You do too. The horrors and ravages of war. Those that are perpetrating crimes upon the innocent. Those that are mistreating children, including the unborn. There are so many things that I'm ready for Jesus to judge. And anyone who has been associated with it. But when I'm honest with myself, the thing that concerns me most is his judgment of me. Not the sin that has been a part of my life, for that has already been pardoned. It is already under the blood. Hear me, if you are a follower of Jesus, on the day of judgment, you will not have to give an account for the sin you committed, because Jesus already did. He took upon himself your sin, past, present, and future. And he gave to you, imputed to you, his righteousness. You couldn't earn it on your own, but he gave it to you freely. So when you stand before God, you won't give an account. You won't be judged for your failures and sin. Can I hear an amen? amen. 
You need to understand that. However, you will give an account. Everyone in Christ will no longer give an account for their failures. They will give an account for what they did with what they received. Because we've all been given talents and blessings and gifts and resources and time and energy. Where do we put that? Because that's what we'll give an account for, whether we've served the way Jesus served and whether we did it the way he's called us to do. How am I doing in this area? How are you doing in this area? Am I more concerned with my own status or with caring for others? Am I more like the Gentile king who wields authority? Or am I more like the servant that waits on the table? Am I too busy building my little own kingdom? Or am I completely busy serving his? The incredible thing is that even after Jesus recalibrating them towards service after they had clamored for power and prestige and for authority. Even after all that, Jesus still promises them a great seat at his table. In fact, he said they'll be sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's amazing. Behold, you, his disciples, your king is coming. But the crowd... And his own disciples, they weren't the only ones that would have to grapple with this coming king. Maybe the most consequential person to engage him was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Look with me at John chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Jesus answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. I wish I had time to really unpack all that happens in this exchange between Pilate and Jesus. It is super intense. It's a trial, the trial of the ages. It covers the gamut. Like, what is truth? There's a whole series of sermons right there. Or, who's really in charge here? Pilate or Jesus? Or, whose kingdom is going to last? It's all kind of packed into this exchange between this Roman governor and the king of kings and lord of lords. First, Pilate is skeptical, and then he's kind of intrigued. And then he turns perplexed, and ultimately, we're going to see he grows scared. But the thing we need to realize, and the point I want to get across to us today, is that everyone we have read about in these verses, from the crowd, to his disciples, to the Roman ruler, 
had to grapple with the coming king. It continues in John 19, verse 1. And then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, the crowd, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Why did he beat him? Well, probably because he was trying to pacify the crowd while getting away with not doing what they wanted. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. And then the chief priest and the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, we ought, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate doesn't find fault in Jesus, but he's losing control of this situation. And he's starting to panic. What if this country rabbi really is something more? What if he really is the son of God? Romans were very superstitious. What if he's one of the gods who will come back to haunt me? After further interrogation, Pilate finds himself backed into a corner in this situation with few options but to give the Jewish leaders exactly what they wanted. Verse 12 says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Oh, low blow. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Verse 14, And now... It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, what did he say? Behold your king. He's still grappling with this coming king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. The chief priests have lost all their shame and the governor has lost all his patience. They blasphemed by announcing they have no other king than Caesar. And he has secured his place in history as the most notorious leader who sentenced Jesus to die. But in so doing, they all, every one of them, were grappling 
with this coming king. Everyone will. Everyone sitting here in this room today will at one point or another grapple with this coming king. No one will get an exemption. Everyone must face this king and answer for him or herself what to do with him. The two thieves who hung beside him did. One of them refused and cursed him. The other pled with him saying, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. The soldier, probably a centurion, who hung the sign above his head that said, King of the Jews, he had to grapple with him. But he also watched Jesus take his final breath, which convinced him, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. We all have to grapple with the king. Nobody gets an exemption. The coming king has come. What will we do with him? Not just the day he rides into our town, but every day thereafter. What will you do with this coming king? He's more than a baby in a manger. He's more than a sweet teacher on a hill. He came to be your king and nothing else will do. To reign on the throne of your heart. And as Curtis prayed this morning in the prayer meeting before our gathering, you really don't know him until you know him as Lord. Behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king has come. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is here even this morning. He's come again. He is calm, humble, and lowly of heart, not forcing or twisting your arm, but fully putting before you, what will you do with this king? You, not the church, not the leaders, not your neighbor, not your partner, not your wife. What will you do with this king? He's ready to ride right into your life. <laughs> right into your routine. Right into your habits. Right into your mess and establish his kingdom, his rule, his reign, which gives you abundant life like you've never had before. He has come to establish his kingdom and not just on the day that you accept him, but every day after. As you as his follower, choose to pick up your cross and deny yourself and follow the king. Sure, it will mean your tables get flipped because he's righteous and there are just some things he's not going to put up with. But it will also mean that you get a seat at his table, a throne of your own to rule and reign with him. The Bible says we are seated with him in heavenly places. And so while your tables may be flipped, the seat you're about to get is so much better. Behold, the king has come. Amen. Amen.
My wife is going to come. We're going to pray with you and, and uh, give opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. All of this morning has been such an opportunity to submit to him as king. Um, Gracie's prophetic word that you're carrying something you don't need to, he's got it. Wade's prayer that, that we would give him his rightful place and agree with him about that. Yeah. And then Chris's message and invitation. Much of the chaos and the challenges that we face that we think we cannot overcome stem from the fact that we are not rightly responding to his rule. So I want you to take just a moment and think of something in your life that you would describe as chaos. Something unwanted or difficult or prolonged, whether it's a relationship or a circumstance. And when we pray, I want you to just to ask God, is this one of those things? Is this a place where you need to be king in my life? Are we making our own rules, preferences, and perspectives while living in the domain of a ruling king? Jesus' kingdom is not a democracy. We did not vote him into office. But we can experience his power, his protection, and his kingdom when we learn what it means to honor him as a king in that place that maybe currently we aren't. So I was very convicted today and am very clear on a couple of places where his kingdom needs to be brought to bear in my life. And so I want you to know that when I'm praying for us, I'm really praying for us, (laughs) me. Me Um, You just get in on it while I'm doing it. Why don't you think of that place? That's good, Donna. The place that is chaos for you that his kingship, his lordship, his kingdom needs to come to bear. Let's pray and hold it to the Lord. God, we are so humble when we see you in your rightful place, but we feel so tenderly your love and compassion that you don't just draw the line and say, measure up to it. You draw the line and say, come unto me. I can meet this standard. So we want to give you your rightful place. We want to acknowledge that we are living in your kingdom and you are the king. And if there's anything in us that stands up against that, if there's a circumstance where we're choosing our own path, if there's a relationship where we've chosen our perspective or analysis over and above what you say, we want to bow our heads and bow our knees before you and say, you are king of this specific situation, of my heart, of my life, of what, we're, what I'm doing, of what I'm believing. 
Father, I ask that you would come gently to hearts here who are acknowledging that perhaps we've tried to make ourselves king in certain places and come with your mercy, with your forgiveness and restore us in right relationship with you, our king. Yes, Lord. We don't want to be a part of those that miss the real point of it all. We don't want to be waving palm branches one day and like Wade said, calling for crucifixion the next week. But we want to be those who are submitted to you. And when you ride into our heart where we're completely yielded to your work. And we, Lord, want to be useful in your hands, not grappling for power, but grappling with the king. We want to be those that are servants, just like you are. And we want to be the one useful in your hand. I pray for us as a church community. The world needs the message of your kingdom. The good news of the kingdom of God because it's not oppressive. It promises liberty and life. It promises abundance. Yes, lordship, but the fullness of God in our midst. So I pray that you'll help us to be useful in this community, in our neighborhoods, where we work, where we go to school, where we live. May we walk as subjects of the king, bringing good news of his reign and rule and freedom that is available to those who would respond to him. They would say, Lord, remember me as you enter your kingdom. Thank you for what you're doing even now, Lord. We submit to you and pray that your Holy Spirit, who has come to bring us into all wisdom and truth, not only comfort us, but push us out to where we need to be. Rule and reign here in our place. Let's stand and sing.